the role that I play as a global learning leader is to do the best job I possibly can to create the resources and hopefully the environment that they need to get in touch with whatever they need to learn in the most kind of obstruction-free, frictionless way possible. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest on this episode is Dan Mitchell, the Senior Vice President and Global Learning Leader at March. Dan is passionate about employee coaching and employee training, but he feels that the way most companies train their employees is the wrong way to go about it. So what's the right way to go about it, and what are companies getting wrong? Let's find out from the man himself and dive right in. Dan Mitchell, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am living this new dream. Thank you for asking. <laughs> okay. Living uh, the dream. Yeah, ain't that the truth? Dan, I, I appreciate you carving out some time today. We're going to sit down. We're going to go through your background. We're going to talk about kind of what brings you here today, some of the things that you're doing. I'd also just like to get to know you, or well, not me, but let everyone else get to know you on a more personal level. What do you say we get this party started? Sounds great, man. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. How do you uh, uh, qualify yourself? Uh, introvert, extrovert, or uh, centrovert, ambivert? Like one of those in between. Yeah, I'm definitely an introvert. Any behavior that I display, I should say that I consciously focus on display that gives off the impression of being an extrovert is learned behavior. I mean, I can remember times from when I was a kid where being around other kids, particularly girls, which to a degree kind of lasts to this day, but just having real difficulty being able to interact with kids. Another reason for that is I have a condition called alexithymia, which is, I don't know if you've heard of it before, no. it might not be familiar to a lot, of, a lot of your listeners, but it's basically kind of an inability to recognize emotions. And you might have heard of face blindness before, you know, kind of yeah. see people's faces and just can't put a face to a name to save their own life. That's kind of how I deal with emotions. You've probably seen this exercise done before in psychological experiments where they actually have a someone's emotional reaction, like on a placard on a picture, and they show it to a person, ask the person to describe the emotion that that person is experiencing. I'm blind to that. So if I look at like a series of pictures of people's faces, one has surprise, one has shock, one has despair, one has amusement. It's really difficult for me to actually recognize any differences between those. They all just look weird to me. That's something that there's enough introverts that have that condition 
to make it something that is not unheard of. And there's probably a lot of people in the world that operate relatively effectively with alexithymia that where you just don't know it, right? Particularly people like me who have learned to, I wouldn't say fake it, but who have learned to operate somewhat effectively in the world with the condition. The challenge is like for any introvert, if you're an introvert who's learned to behave in an extroverted type of way, it requires a lot of physical and mental effort. For me with alexithymia, it's twice as much. So like when I was in one of my previous jobs, when I was with Mercer, I was in a sales role. I was in a regional kind of what we call region market development. So I was kind of the head of client engagement for the Southeast Asia region. And I would have to do entertainment a lot. I would have to carry cue cards with me in my back pocket. I would occasionally take restroom breaks and look at my cue cards to find topics to discuss. And when I was done entertaining clients, I would usually need to sleep from 12 to 14 hours to recover. Wow. That, yeah. That's, uh, all right, man. I opened up with a major salvo against you tonight. <laughs> yeah. You're like, shit, now where do we go with this? <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was, wow. I mean, there's so many things I want to unpack there. First and foremost, I mean, thank you for sharing. That's absolutely fantastic. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now you've got my brain going. And I mean, I can't even fathom how hard, how challenging that's got to be in life, let alone to get to achieve what you have been able to achieve in the role that you're in with so much interaction with people. And oh my God. So I'm sure you're familiar with this, or if you're not, have you ever heard of a Moravian's law or Moravian's rule? Do you know what that is? Hammurabi? Or no, no, no. So this is Albert Marine. I'm sure I'm botching his name, but he, he's a, a professor at UCLA. He's a famous, I don't know if it's a, a sociologist or an anthropologist, but anyways, the Moravian rule or law, it's um, 738.55. 7% of communication is words, 38% is tonality, and 55% right. is body language. So how, I mean, you are at a major disadvantage by not being able to pick up on so many of these cues. I mean, you're, you're yeah. so how have you done this? I mean, the, the cards, that's awesome that you kind of found a quasi workaround and then to be put in sales. You know? Yeah, I know. I know it's, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, sometimes I'm really, this is going to sound perhaps kind of oddly self-serving, but I mean, I'm sometimes surprised at what I've been able to do just because so many of my interactions with people require so much mental effort to just be able to pick up those cues. And a lot of times it's picking up a cue based on, again, just learning. So it's observation, looking at people's body language, at their behavior, how, if I'm in a group, how people interact with each other. I know what a laugh is when I see a laugh. It's just that a lot of times I can't tell the difference between, let's say, like a fake laugh, so when someone's faking it versus when they're really amused. And so I have to take it for granted well, put another way, I have to assume that when I hear people around me displaying behavior that is consistent with being amused, that they genuinely are amused. So there have probably been a lot of times where I've just completely missed cues. And I'm going into a conversation assuming, wow, I'm having a really positive impact here. And people are just kind of nervously laughing at me, <laughs> like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? I've learned to develop, I guess to a degree, I've developed a sense of humor about insofar as someone like me can have a sense of humor, which we can, it's just a different kind of sense of humor. I've had to really develop a sense of levity 
around this condition and to just basically accept all the craziness that comes with it. The miscues, the social uh, kind of foibles and the mistakes that I've made. I mean, I remember earlier in my career, you know, with uh, one manager I worked with who was actually a, really a positive um, force in my life at the time. And I can talk about her a little bit later if you want to, when we talk about influences in my career, but she gave me feedback sometimes. She says, sometimes when I'm with you, when I'm talking to you, I feel like you just have no idea <laughs> what the proper response is in a given situation. Like you really struggle to figure out. And then she says, on other times, you're just spot on and you're able to almost like lead a conversation in a way that actually gets people on board with you rather than you having to react to people and get on board with them. And she says, I'm just like, I'm really confused by that. And that's when I kind of opened the door and I let her know mm. about what this situation with this condition is that I've gotten. And just like with anything else, there are degrees, right? I mean, there are some people with pretty extreme alexithymia that's almost on the border of being on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum. And then there are people like me who are probably on the milder edge of the condition. So it's there. It is present in me. Like one of the things is it doesn't, there are a lot of people with alexithymia who suffer from pretty severe depression. I've had my own bouts with depression in the past and probably will for the rest of my life, but it doesn't get as, as extreme for me. And I think that's because you could argue possibly there's part of my brain that is able to process, you know, emotions in a way that allows me to, to a degree, kind of fake it until I make it, but also to kind of learn over time to recognize certain cues. And once I've got those memorized and I see them repeatedly, it becomes more habitual to respond correctly in the right situation. But it's completely, it's, it's all logical for me. In other words, it's like, if I'm sitting down in a conversation with you and you and I are going back and forth and bantering and kind of laughing and feeding off of one another's energy, for you, it's probably a much more natural experience. For me, it's a logical, it's a process that I go through. So I have to be consciously aware of it and think my way through it. It's almost like basically there's an algebra or a calculus to Damn. these conversations that I have to go through and manage during the conversation, which is one of the reasons why I really value my time alone to just recharge because it, it can be exhausting. I don't even know where to begin again on this. I mean, first of all, I've not picked up on this. We've hung out. We've gone to dinner a couple of times. We've had countless conversations. I mean, I knew you were an introvert and I knew that you got your energy from being alone, but the fact that this the amount of energy that it takes to kind of interact on this kind of level, that's just amazing. And probably for now on, you're going to be like, oh man, you know, I, I, I want to go out and maybe hang out with Dan, but I, I don't want to put him through it. No, yeah, that's listen, exactly it's, I I, Yeah, you're like, you're like, I don't want this poor guy to like have a, like a, have a conniption fit in front of me. No, don't worry about it because I really do enjoy it. There's a certain amount of that, the energy that I have to use to be with people and have those conversations and be really present in the moment. To me, it's a worthwhile investment. I really do see it though. It is a worthwhile investment, even though it does sometimes. I mess up sometimes. There are times when I've been in conversations where, I mean, imagine the most socially awkward person you've ever met. I have definitely displayed that behavior at one time or another in my life. Definitely, definitely. It re many, many times over. It's anybody's guess. I mean, so many things have to line up well for me to just be totally on point in a conversation. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. And when they're not, oh boy. It's a. Uh, wow. How have you been able to keep getting back up on the horse? Not only that, but man, I get so many other questions. But just to give people, if we don't mind, let's rewind a minute for a second because yeah. I want people to understand that are listening to this. 
the level, the position that you're functioning in, extremely high level. Um, so if you don't mind, give a little background on kind of who you are and what you're doing today. And then if it's all right, I'm going to go back into some of these other questions. So Yeah, so uh, I am the global learning leader for a company called Marsh. Marsh is part of the Marsh and McLennan Companies organization. So within Marsh and McLennan Companies, or within Marsh and McLennan, there are four what we used to call operating companies, now we call business units. Marsh is the largest of the four. So we've got around 40,000 employees in our organization. And then apart from Marsh, you've got Mercer, which probably a lot of your uh, listeners have heard of. And then we've also got a company called Guy Carpenter, which is a reinsurance brokerage. I'm simplifying what they do, but just basically to keep it simple. They're a reinsurance brokerage and then also Oliver Wyman, which is a strategy consulting firm. Previously, I worked for Mercer in a consulting role and also, like I mentioned before, in a region market development, kind of a sales and client management role. And then after that, in 2012, I moved over to Marsh, where I first worked in the business. And then after working in the business for a while, I moved over into, uh, into HR. So first, I was in a talent management role for our Asia Pacific region. And then after doing that for a while, I then took over the global learning leader role back in 2018. Wow. So every role you've had, you've had to have a lot of interaction with people. Yeah, yeah. I'll t- I mean, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, if you've taken one of those, and I'm sure a lot of people have, uh, and I certainly have taken those career preferences assessments, where it talks about, you know, what kind of career you ideally suited for. And every single one that I get is, is careers where you operate in isolation from others. Researcher, scientist, PhD in any particular area, academic, engineer, very technical fields that don't necessarily require, or they maybe in some cases do, but a lot of times they don't necessarily require a lot of teamwork and interact, social interaction with people. You can be very successful without a lot of that. And yet, for some reason, I mean, just call me, I, I guess you could say a glutton for punishment or just constantly looking to have my ass kicked and learn from the experience. I don't know. I, I think this is kind of, it goes back to my philosophy a little bit. If I have a life philosophy, I mean, part of that life philosophy has just been, there's a book that I love, which I think makes the case very well. It's a book by a guy named Ryan Holiday. And the book is called The Obstacle is the Way. And the idea behind that book is that it's about, and I'm looking at the book right now on my bookshelf, it says the timeless art of turning trials into triumph. I bought that book, I remember I saw it on the shelf, not because I was thinking to myself, oh, this is something I need to learn how to do. I bought it because I was just like, well, God, this is what I've been doing my whole life. Maybe now reading this book, I understand what's wrong with me. Why have I been doing this? Why do I constantly turn into these challenges that put me in the way of great learning and growth, but also just put me through the ringer? Just, God, just beat the hell out of me. So I don't know. I mean, one other part of my, I guess you could say my life philosophy is you only do this once, right? You only go around once. So don't screw around with the opportunity. Sometimes living the life you want to live means you've got to experience pain. There's going to be suffering and you can't run from that. You've got to kind of run into it because on the other side of that is all the growth that you were looking for. And I just decided at a fairly young age for a variety of different reasons, I wasn't going to run away. Mm. I just couldn't. I couldn't live my life that way. So how do yeah. you translate that overall? Because that's fantastic. I mean, that's just extremely motivational. Here you are, the global head of learning and talent. How can you pass along even just like almost your own personal journey through your role and get that through the organization? 
that's a hard question to answer because I don't, I don't think about that very much, to be quite honest. Hmm. The reason I don't necessarily think about that, like how can I pass on what I've learned to others, is the same reason why, and this goes to a question that perhaps we were going to talk about you know, at some point today, it was around in what area do you consider yourself an expert? I don't consider myself an expert in anything, anything. As a matter of fact, I don't even really like the word expert. And one of the things I would say to listeners and anyone who I have a chance to talk to is willing to listen to me kind of go on and on about this is whenever I see someone's LinkedIn profile and in their LinkedIn profile, they call themselves an expert. I'm just like, wow, man, you really need to step back and reassess because the term expert implies I've got this, I've nailed this, all the kind of the learning or all the expertise or all the all the marrow that is in the bone of this particular area of expertise or this kind of profession or what have you, I've sucked it all dry. I've gotten all the marrow out. So I've got nothing more to learn. And to me, that's just, that's just anathema to my whole philosophy of life. It's just you, the more you learn, and you might've heard this before, the more you learn, the more of an idiot you realize you are. The more you learn and grow, the more you realize you just don't know. Can I interject for one quick second, yeah, yeah, yeah. by the way? Sure. Yeah. I really do hope these podcasts come out in order because what's really interesting, so just the last one that I did, that quote that you just said yeah. was brought up, that exact quote. Oh. I'm really sorry to cut you off, but it was just so apropos. I mean, and we were talking about a completely different subject. So it's so yeah. interesting to see just experts. At, again, this is another global head talking about something completely different, but it's really all about the same thing, about that level of humility. And you're also making me, I want to, as soon as we get off this, I'm going to go check my profile because I've referred to myself as an expert in relationships or networking. And now I'm really having to question that because here I was, I've known you all this time, all this interaction, and I missed any of those cues that you had. So clearly I am not an expert. I'm sorry to interject. Please keep going. But I, I had to share that. No, that's fine. That's fine. That's a small example of how I sometimes get myself into trouble. I don't really have a filter, regardless of who I'm talking to. I could be talking to our CHRO, our CEO. The way I communicate with my friends is the same way I communicate with other people in my company, regardless of their level, in most cases, unless I'm really kind of conscious in a particular situation. It's not going to serve anyone's interest for me to like just really be no filter Dan. You know, I sometimes I have to put a lid on it a little bit, unconsciously aware of it. But most of the time, most of the time, I just basically, it goes from my brain to my mouth with very little kind of political or kind of that processing that most people do to say to themselves, hmm, is this going to be a career limiting statement I'm going to make? <laughs> ah, screw it. I don't even go through that calculus. It just goes out there. And then sometimes I feel like I want to reach out, grab those words and pull them back in because that's not good for anyone. Can I tell you something yeah. about that? That has to be a very free way to go through life whether you're conscious of that or not, because just to be able to kind of not have that filter that does take something. I have that filter and that filter takes energy to use yeah. sometimes. So. Yeah, not really for me. It's, uh, I'm not dumb. I mean, I certainly known in certain circumstances, I better like keep my mouth shut because I know if I start talking, I know I'm going to say something that's going to piss someone off. So you have to be strategically intelligent in certain situations, you know, what to say, what not to say. But I mean, going back to your other question, yeah, I don't ever necessarily look at my particular situation and say, how can I pass this on? I mean, maybe with the exception of my son, 
because I do think really consciously and deliberately and with a lot of effort around what is it that I've learned that I could pass on to him so he can avoid some of the mistakes that I've made. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm not so presumptuous as to assume that my, what I've learned in my life is something that you know someone who's a peer of mine should know as well. That's their journey. The role that I play as a global learning leader is to do the best job I possibly can to create the resources and hopefully the environment that they need to get in touch with whatever they need to learn in the most kind of obstruction-free, frictionless way possible. In our lives, there's a lot of shit that gets in the way of us being able to pursue and achieve what we want to get out of life. And what I want to do in my role is to say, you know, how can I just remove some of that friction, those obstacles? How can I make it as easy as possible for people to find the information they need to close whatever gaps in their, their skill, their performance level, whatever, after they've made the conscious decision to do so? I don't believe it's my responsibility to kind of say, hey, here's my story. And my story is a great one because look, all these challenges I've overcome. So, hey, learn from me. I just can't. That just doesn't compute for me. <laughs> Good for you. I'll tell you, there was something that you said to me. It was one of the first conversations actually we ever had. I wrote down this quote that you said. And I, don't, I don't know if it's a, it was just something that kind of rolled off your tongue. I don't know if it was something that you had heard before, but it really made me kind of stop and pause. I forgot what the context was. We were talking like we do and we're talking about training. And again, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I wrote down the quote because I thought it was so good. You said, Adam, training is an event. Learning is a journey. And I thought that was so good with the conviction that you said, it sounded like something that you'd almost like said to yourself before or had heard before. And it sounded like kind of like a way that you lived your life. Is that accurate? I know I got that from someone else. I certainly didn't create that quote myself, but I, I don't know what the origin of that is. That's something that I've always believed, even way back in my career, when I left high school and went in the Marine Corps, that's one of the things that I got out of that experience being in the Marines was just, there's so much time spent in development for obvious reasons, right? I mean, if you don't get developed, if you don't get the training that you need and don't go through the, you know, all those events on that journey towards competence as, and I was in the infantry, right? So competence as a rifleman in the Marine Corps, the consequences are dire to say the least, right? So yeah. there are very real consequences on the end of bad preparation. If you, as a Marine, you're underprepared to meet whatever challenges you have to meet. So that was something that I didn't have the words for it at the time, but that was something I believed very deeply. And so in my career, as I got into people development, that was something that I always believed even before I had a quote or any science behind it to describe it. So that's the way I've always seen it. I always, to tell you the truth, I mean, I'm the kind of person where anytime I see, and organizations do this all the time, right? Whether it's people in a leadership role or people in HR and the training function, they see a problem, they say, holy shit, we got to do something about this. The CEO is screaming for a solution. Let's run a workshop where we can bring everyone in for a couple of days, shovel some great information down their throat, cross our fingers and hope for the best. Because that's ultimately what you're doing. It's kind of like, you know what? I'm weak. I need to get myself in physical shape. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to spend two days in the gym and just burn it. January and I'm going to walk out a new man or a new woman. No, you're not. You're going to walk out having made no progress and probably likely being injured as a result of it, right? Being stunted, your growth having been stunted because of stupidity in that move. So it's, um, I've always been one to kind of cry out whenever I see that, what I see as a, a real bad yet often repeated approach to people development is that event-based approach, which is us all wrong. So what are some of the things 
you sitting at the top of this major organization, what are some of the biggest impacts that you're trying to implement that can ripple through the company? I think what we try to do, and this is my team and me, you know, what we actually try to, my team and I, what we try to implement. And I said this a little bit earlier. I mean, some of what we do is events, right? I mean, you can't get away entirely from the event-based approach, but we always look at events as a point in a journey. So you just don't come in, do a day or two days and walk away and Bob's your uncle. You're finished. You're good to go. That's just not the way we operate. So everything that we try to create, we try to create it as part of a journey down the road towards ultimately towards competence and however you define that. So the way I always explain that to my team when we first started and how I explain it to anyone who's a stakeholder of ours is what we do is we create the Lego bricks. Okay. Those Lego bricks can be two-hour virtual instructor-led training sessions. They could be a job aid, a performance support tool. It could be curated learning through our LMS. It could be a one-day workshop. It could be a two-day workshop. These are all pieces that can, we don't recommend they stand alone, but they can stand alone. More ideally, what we do is we stack those Legos up into learning journeys so that if you want to be a better manager, a better leader, a better client executive, better at actually selling and retaining client relationships, at building those relationships over a time, wherever you do your job in the organization, we want to create the resources for you so that you can intelligently make your own choices around your own development over time. And that's the other thing I think is that ultimately you have to be able to trust that people are going to make their own smart choices. But to help them make those smart choices, you've got to give them good information. You've got to give them good tools to work with and then let them have at it. Let them, you know, give them the tools, give them the guidance, give them the resources. But then at some point, you've got to, to a degree, walk away and say, ultimately, your development is your responsibility. It really is. As an adult, your development is your responsibility. My job here is to create, to give you the resources in the most friction-free environment possible to the extent to which we actually have control over that. And then, like I said, let you just go for it. So you're about giving them the tools, giving them the opportunities, not necessarily a one size uh, fits all approach. Cause obviously there are lots of different ways to skin a cat, but you want to yeah. be able to provide them. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I think there are two or degree. There are some things that can be done under one size fits all, especially if there's, if you're trying to create a certain culture of the organization, you have a purpose. Let's say for example, if there's a story, that the CEO is trying to tell around what we are and who we are as an organization, the role that we play in society, the role that we play vis-a-vis our clients. If done right and done well, and I think we've done a really good job in Marsh, what that all tends to hinge on are certain kind of key, simple, easy to understand ideas and a story behind those ideas. And I think a lot of time that's the kind of stuff that you don't necessarily need to massage that a, a thousand different ways for a thousand different colleague populations. You can actually pull that all together into one narrative that you can share across the entire organization so everyone understands this, that purpose or that culture using the same story. There is certainly space for that, but I would count that as an exception to people development, not necessarily the rule. If you really want to, to help people make it happen for themselves, you've got to realize that in an organization of 40,000 people, you're going to have a lot of variability built in, yeah. into what they want. Let me ask you this. We're starting to get a little tight on time. I'd love to get your perspective on coaching. I got multiple layers to this. Number one, how important is it? Number two, how important is the type of coaching? And then I guess the the last point to that is just the style. Yeah. 
And I know that that alone could be its own podcast, but if you don't mind just kind of sharing your high level perspective. So let me uh, delve into territory where my filter is. <laughs> my lack of a filter <laughs> might get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway, just because that's, you know, you know, now you know who you're dealing with. In the spirit um, of the podcast. Go for that's it. That's <laughs> right. I, I've gone through ICF training. So I'm, I've gone through the ICF training necessary to, once I get the hours to qualify me for at the PCC level of coaching. So the professional certified coach. So you've got the ACC, then you've got PCC, and then I think you've got MCC. So I don't have the hours for PCC. I'm kind of somewhere between, I have to look at my hours again, but I'm somewhere between ACC and PCC in terms of the qualification itself. But so I've done a lot of coaching and I've gone through the training and everything else. I, having said that, having gone through the training, I don't think the ICF has cornered the market on the latest, greatest thinking as it relates to coaching people. I think that they have a lot of great ideas and a lot of what they say makes sense. But I think just like in most areas in life, coaching can and should continue to evolve. And I think that a lot of times, unfortunately, people tend to look at coaching, maybe because they have so much emotional investment in the idea, kind of like growth mindset, right? It's one of those things that attracts a lot of hot, like white hot energy on the part of people, whether it's you know, growth mindset or unconscious bias or coaching, there are certain topics in our world that tend to attract a lot of, like I said, heat and light in terms of energy and very strong opinions on what good looks like and what right is. And my view is everything is in a state of evolution, right? And it can always get better. Not to say I have the answers, let's say, around coaching to make it better. I look at everything in coaching as a tool, not a rule. So what I mean by that is, let's say, you know, one tool in coaching is the balance between advocacy and inquiry. So advocacy, you've got, you know, kind of offering your opinion, your perspective, your view on certain things that you've heard in the coaching discussion, or that you think could be of value observations that you want to make that could be of valuable to the person that you're coaching. Then you've got inquiry, which is just powerful, as the ICF would say, powerful question, powerful questioning. My view is that depending on who you're coaching, different people have got different needs. And if you take the time to understand who it is that you're working with, you're going to recognize how to massage that balance. Sometimes you need to be a little bit more on asking good questions and sitting back and letting them take the reins and figure things out themselves. Sometimes you're going to deal with people who are just locked up and who really need a nudge in order to kind of break free of a particular mindset or whatever area they tend to be stuck in so that they can free themselves up to respond more effectively to whatever great questions you have. So we used to, when we did leadership development in March years ago, or just right up until recently, we were using the GROW model. And you might be familiar with the GROW model for coaching, right? So goals, what's the situation right now? What are your options? What's next? Or what are your goals, whatever, or what's to come? We got away from that because GROW is a useful model for executive coaching. It's not a useful model for most managers. Most managers are not going to grab their employee, sit down for 45 minutes to an hour in an office somewhere, and have a proper end-to-end coaching conversation. Most of their coaching is everyday coaching, coaching in the moment. And sometimes those conversations can be three minutes long. Sometimes it can be 20 minutes long. It's a whole variety of different situations in which coaching can take place. So trying to say to someone, hey, if you're going to be coaching someone, you got to ask questions. You can't tell. You can't kind of direct. You just simply have to coach, and that's just only asking good questions. I don't think that makes sense. I mean, it, it can make sense in certain circumstances. In some circumstances, it doesn't. I think you have to rely on 
the intelligence that the manager has and the quality of the relationship they have with their people in order for them to decide what's the right approach here. And that's the approach that I use with my people. Sometimes I sit back, I ask good questions, I let them figure out themselves. Other times I'm dealing with people who are just, they might be stuck. And if they're stuck, sorry, I haven't got time to sit on the phone with you for an hour and ask questions and hope that you're going to find your way. Yeah. Sometimes I just need to just say, you know what, listen, I'm going to nudge you in a particular direction because I think you need the help. Boom. Here you go. Now, what's the next step? And I'll let them tell me what the next step is. I don't respond well to anyone who has a purist point of view on any of these topics. But let me ask you this. What are your overall thoughts? Do you think that everybody should have a coach or is it just for a certain type of person? I think we could all benefit from coaching. Now, should everyone have a coach? That's above my pay grade. I don't know if everyone should have a coach. I think it would be great if everyone had a coach. I think that's unrealistic. I mean, particularly for organizations that need to pay for everyone to have a coach. I mean, let's be real. Most organizations just simply do not have the funding to make coaching available to everyone. But I think it does make sense for organizations to continue hammering away at building coaching capabilities in their organization. My advice would be to say, listen, take a more flexible approach with regard to coaching. Try not to be a purist. Try not to go out to your, when you're developing leaders and managers in your organization saying the best coaching is only asking powerful questions. I mean, come on, who are we kidding? That's for a lot of people, that's going to be a bridge too far. It's simply going to be a bridge too far. Let's look for that 10% improvement to start with and then build on that rather than asking them to turn 180 degrees from day one and manage people in an entirely different way. Yeah. For most people that probably just won't work. That's a great point. Dan, <laughs> this conversation went <laughs> in a totally different direction than I'd anticipated, but that's one yeah. of the beauty. That is one of the beauties of of, of doing this. <laughs> so, I got to thank you for making today happen. I really, I mean, I just appreciate. I I can't imagine it being easy to just be that open. I mean, I know that you're a very straight shooter, but that was, uh, you know, you displayed a high level of vulnerability, and uh, it's just not an easy thing to do for anybody. So, I appreciate that share. Sure. Yeah. Well, the ironic thing, I mean, here's the interesting irony about what I just shared. It was really easy for me to share that with you because hmm. you got to remember, if you think about the difficulty that I have with processing kind of emotions and emotional reactions, I don't, uh, oh man, for better or for worse, I just don't have a lot of shame. <laughs> <laughs> I think <that> is awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so the normal, the normal calculus that people would go through saying, wow, I don't know if I should share this because you know, it's uh, really personal. Blah, blah. <sighs> Boy, I can tell you, I mean, maybe on another conversation sometime, I can tell you about times that I've overshared man, it's, it'll just make your skin crawl. I don't know if I'll ever get over that. I mean, it's a consequence of my brain chemistry and how I'm put together. And oh. um, one more thing I want to leave everyone with, because this is really important to me. I partially say this out of personal experience that's been really difficult and frustrating for me, is a lot of people in our world, in the corporate world, managers, HR, you name it, um, really have no idea how to deal with people who struggle with any type of mental disability. I don't believe I have a disability, it's a condition. So I definitely don't put myself in the same category as people who suffer from, I think, conditions or situations that are a lot more debilitating than mine and have much more dire consequences, if not managed well, either by themselves or the people around them. And so I think that we, in an organization of our size or of any large organization, is gonna be a microcosm of society at large. 
you're going to have your share of narcissists and sociopaths and bad side of that spectrum, but you're also going to have really good people who are trying desperately to cope and be successful in a world that is sometimes not very forgiving. And my challenges, I believe, have paled in comparison to people, let's say, who might be on the functional end of the spectrum or who might be, have been dealing for years and years for whatever reasons with clinical depression or with any host of challenges, you know, disabilities that have been major obstacles that they've had to deal with. And the lack of understanding of the people around them can be pretty brutal sometimes. And a lot of times that brutality that we have to deal with I'm using the royal we here because I don't necessarily, like I said, put myself in the camp of people who really suffer, but the challenges that people have to deal with are oftentimes with uh, people that they work with who just don't know any better. I don't think they're operating out of malice. They just don't understand. I mean, if you're African-American or you're you know, Hispanic or you're an Asian-American or man, woman, who you are to a certain degree, your identity is immediately obvious. People can see it. When you're operating with a mental condition or a disability, it's hidden a lot of times. It's in the background. It's not there on the surface. And so it can be pretty rough. And so what I would say is for your listeners who don't deal with that, or maybe they have a family member who deals with it, you got to realize there are people in your organization who deal with this. Take some time, educate yourself, and when you're around people who seem to be behaving in a way that in a manner that's inconsistent to what you think is right, you might want to just take some time, take a step back, take a breath and realize you might be dealing with something who is dealing with a challenge that is on a completely different level than what you're used to. I would say err on the side of assuming good intent when you see behavior in an organization that doesn't necessarily align with what you want. Err on the side of assuming good intent. Don't Try not to err on the side of assuming this person is just, I don't know, whatever, a malcontent or whatever it is. I think there's a degree of patience that we need that is not there as much as it should be. So I just wanted to end with that. That's something I just cared really deeply about. That is a great share. I think there are a lot of people that can learn from that, myself included. I really appreciate that. And uh, one more thing before I let you go, just for the record, as you were just talking and I was listening, but I did check my LinkedIn profile and I'm not proclaiming to be an expert. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel a little bit bad about having said that because anyone who's listening to this who's got expert in their profile somewhere is probably like, oh man, come on. Anyway, no, it, yeah, it's on yeah. point, man. It is right. on point. Dan, thank you so much for making it on the show today. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, it was my pleasure. This is great. Good fun. Thanks. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always network wise.